Let me ask a question today. Look for those of you that are nine years old and younger. Don't answer, but can you name the town in which Jesus was born? Just raise your hand if you can. You're nine years or younger, and you say, I know where Jesus was born. Go ahead, raise your hand, put it up. Good, we got one. (laughs) I think there's probably more. What town was Jesus born in? Let's go 18 years and down. Do you know? Can you put your hand up? Be confident. Put it up there. I know the town where Jesus was born and the rest of us, everyone. Put it up there. Show your knowledge. Is there anybody that has no idea where Jesus was born? Probably not. Maybe not one person. Maybe a couple here among us that not, aren't really sure of the town where he was born. I think we know very well, largely, where Jesus was born. The question I'd like to pursue today is why was he born there? We know well where, Bethlehem of Judea, but why Bethlehem of Judea? We may not have quite as many answers there. It may miss us, perhaps, to some degree. But I trust as we work through that concept today that it will be encouraging and that we'll know more than just where, but why. We'll take a long-running head start to get back to that question toward the end of the message today. But let's look first at the historical record. We've looked at it in Luke 2, but I'd like to particularly focus on Matthew 1 and the account that we find there because it does indeed reflect the place of Bethlehem of Judea. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Matthew 1, if you'd follow with me at verse 18. His birth took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Isaiah 7, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And here it is, chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, that is Herod the great, behold, wise men, magi from the east, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. The magi want to locate the newborn king. When Herod the king, verse 3, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people... He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Herod knows the Hebrew Scriptures. He knows them to some degree. He knows that they contain prophecies about the coming of Messiah who will rule Israel. But these prophecies, understand, are centuries old. 
And so the percentages are in Herod's favor that Messiah will not be born during his reign. But when Magi from a distant land arrive at Herod's palace one fine day, and they claim that Messiah has indeed been born in Herod's realm, the notoriously paranoid Herod scrambles to find out this birthplace. The Magi assume that King Herod will have this information. He actually does not. He doesn't know. But he knows who might know, and he calls together these Jewish leaders, these interpreters of Scripture, and he says, where is the place where Messiah will be born? Verse 5, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. What's the proof of that? Have they seen Messiah born and failed to tell Herod? They better hope not. He'll uh, even the measure with them badly. But fortunately for them, their knowledge is based on prophecy, not on observation. Some eight centuries earlier, think of that length of time. Think of it in terms of perhaps the length of our nation and, the, uh, and, and what we think of uh, duration. 800 years earlier, the prophet Micah pinpointed the birthplace of Messiah. And so they respond, it is written by the prophet Micah. Verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Is this a prophecy about King David, who was born, we know, in Bethlehem of Judea? Well, not at all. And of course, we miss the chronology a bit, but that was 200 years earlier. David has long been born in Bethlehem of Judea, yet here comes this prophet 200 years later saying there will be a king born in Bethlehem of Judea. He will rule Israel. He will shepherd the people of God. That is, he will have God's approval to do so. So Micah here speaks of another king to be born in Bethlehem, David's greater son. Now, what is Herod's interest? Herod's interest is singular. He wants to know the birthplace, the location of Jesus, so that he can kill him. That's really all he's interested in. As we look closer at Micah's prophecy, we acknowledge that Bethlehem is a stunningly specific support for the messianic claims of Jesus Christ. It might be something like saying, the greatest philosopher in Western history, is going to be born in Elko, Minnesota. Well, that nails it down a little bit, doesn't it? And as the teachers that uh, teach the children from Elko, Minnesota say, I haven't seen them yet, I'm pretty sure of that. It's a small little village. I mean, it is a stunning prophecy. It will be this village on the face of the whole planet that this great king to rule Israel, it's from here that he will come. But when we hear that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, we must recognize there is much more to it than merely location. Why Bethlehem? Let's turn to the prophet Micah. It's kind of toward the middle of the minor prophets, right at the end of the Old Testament Scriptures. The prophet Micah in chapter 5. Let me give you a sense of the background, which I think feeds in much to this question, why Bethlehem, and why does Micah say what he does in chapter 5? 
Micah prophesied some 200 years after the reign of King David and some 800 years before the birth of Jesus. He prophesied during a time of economic prosperity in which Israel enjoyed relative peace and greatly expanded borders. It was, in many respects, a golden era, a return to those days of David and Solomon. That's the context in which he's ministering. Coupled with that, it was also a time of great moral corruption. Israel was in the grip of idolatry. But what Micah is particularly focused on in his book is the way that wealth has affected Israel. The wealthy within the land are abusing the poor. And he brings this up over and over again. It's an evidence of your heart. It's an evidence of your unfaithfulness to God, the way that you treat others and the way that you abuse those who have little. The word of Micah comes from God in three oracles to the people of Israel, saying, in a message of doom in each of these oracles, you are at peace now, but judgment will come. Judgment will come. But each of these three oracles also, and, and amazingly, end not as an oracle of doom, but as a promise of God's future grace to Israel. So they move from judgment to ultimate and final blessing. This message is continually repeated. It is repeated on the, in, the, in the latter half of each of these three oracles. Though God will judge His people... He will restore them. That's the message. In fact, Micah stresses a future era in which God's Messiah will reign over the nations and thus secure Israel's ultimate peace. Notice chapter 4 and verse 1. Thinking of it in Israel's context of Micah's day, here we move from doom to blessing as he says, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, whether that's meant figuratively or literally, perhaps literally is the case, but certainly figuratively, it will be the most important spot on the planet. Here at Zion, Jerusalem, the nations will come Many nations coming to the Lord's Messiah, verse 2, they'll come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. That's Zion in Jerusalem. To the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. You are going to learn war. Judgment is going to come. The Assyrian menace is going to come over the borders and is going to besiege Israel. But there is a grand day, a glorious golden era ahead in which all the nations will come submissively to learn from the Lord on Mount Zion. Doom followed by this glorious hope. The prophecy concerning Messiah's birth in Bethlehem then is found in the second oracle right at the place where it transitions from doom to hope. 
Right at that place. In fact, as you go to chapter 5 and verse 1, that actually was chapter 4 and verse 14 in the Hebrew text as it brings to close the section of doom. But here we come to chapter 5 and verse 1, and it helps us just as we get our start there to get this last phrase of doom, of pending doom and destruction. Notice what it says, verse, five, verse 1 of chapter 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek, but that's where it transitions from judgment and doom, from war to the glorious day. Let's go back to verse 1. Muster your troops, O daughter of troops. What does that mean? Micah pictures Israel here as a war-torn nation. She's a daughter of troops is a way of saying you are a war-torn nation. Israel is currently at peace, while Micah writes, but soon she will be under siege from a foreign invader. Soon Sennacherib from Assyria would storm into Israel with his troops and lay siege to the promised land. That's what Micah is prophesying. And with a rod they will strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Who's the judge of Israel? The judge is the king. What's going on here is the conquering king, let's say seated upon a throne, perhaps with a scepter in his hand, and the conquered king, the king of Israel, is going to bow in obeisance before him. And the conquering king will say, take that scepter and smash it across the face of the king, of Israel's king. Now that hurts, undoubtedly. But beyond that, culturally, that was the ultimate shame to hit someone in the face. This is what is going to happen to your king, Israel. He will be struck in the face. He will be conquered. Judgment is coming. Marshal your troops. A future king of Israel will be found in a defenseless position before a conquering foe. Undoubtedly, people mocked Micah's prophecy. But he said, this doom awaits the nation because of our sin. God will not protect us from the oppressor. But, verse 2, but, and here we move to the glorious day, but in the future, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. There is a ruler who will come. You notice the but. In contrast to Israel's demise at the hands of Assyria, Bethlehem Ephrathah is called out as a village. Ephrathah was the ancient name of Bethlehem. There were a, a number of Bethlehems. Like we might have as we go from state to state, you say, oh, here's, here's a city by the name of some city that's near us or something. We have Rochester. Well, where is it? Is it New York? Is it Minnesota? It's a big difference. But how you define that, we use by the state uh, and try not to duplicate any within a state. But for them, they, there were numerous Bethlehems in the one nation. That simply means house of bread. And how do you distinguish? You distinguish by using this ancient name, Ephrathah. That's the Bethlehem that's six miles from Jerusalem. This is the Bethlehem where King David is born. You are too little to be among the clans of Judah. The Hebrew could be translated, you are small among the clans of Judah. It didn't make any difference. But the clans, the word literally means thousands. And it was used typically that when Israel was called to war... A clan would produce a thousand warriors. Bethlehem doesn't even have enough people to produce a thousand warriors at time of war. So you will be at war. A future king will be judged. 
But you, Bethlehem, you don't even have enough to really send out these troops. You're a small community. Yet from this small village shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Now the people who read the Old Testament scriptures, these these Hebrew believers, understand this. The great David, king of Israel, came from this little village. Here is a prophet saying there's going to be another one. Another great king will come from this very village, Bethlehem. Israel's first, and along with him his son Solomon, greatest king was David. But there will be another. Another king from this little town whose origin is from old, from ancient days. How do we read that? As we look at that as Christians, we might typically jump in here and say, well, that's a reference to Jesus Christ. He's the one born in Bethlehem, and he has no origin. He is eternal, the eternal Son of God. And I think ultimately that certainly is the pointer here. But originally, I think it would have been taken a bit differently. And that's when, it, when ancient days are referenced, you have to always take into view the context. What is the context here? The context here is, at least on the surface of things, they would have read this as a reference to his lineage of David. That is, this one born in Bethlehem will be a son of David. Messiah, as one has put it, is no upstart or afterthought in God's program. His origins began when God chose David in the first place. From David, from this ancient king... 200 years prior, again, the word ancient not used necessarily like we would use it, but just this one who comes along before, comes this new king. The ultimate fulfillment, of course, is that the origin of Jesus is ancient beyond what will meet the eye. But he will be a child of David. He will be a son of David being born in Bethlehem. This is the promise of God. Now verse 3 Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. This takes a little work to figure out what this means. But who is he? Therefore, he, that is God, shall give them, Israel, up until the time, that is, Israel will be given into the hand of her enemies for a period of time until she who is in labor has given birth. Who is in labor? Of the immediate context, we go back to chapter 4 and verse 9. Why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country, and you shall go to Babylon, and there you shall be rescued. The picture is of Israel in labor, suffering the pains of birth as she is disciplined by God, by those who will attack her. So Israel will give birth to the son of David. But there will be a lengthy period of time in which she is placed in the hands of her enemies. Ultimately, I think, it certainly is a pointer to the Virgin Mary and to Jesus' birth there. A reference, however, to certainly his first coming, the the birth of Messiah. I think the verse then, at verse 3, transitions to Christ's second coming. Then... So he will be brought forth from Israel, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. The rest of his brothers, 
shall return, I do not believe is a reference to the elect joining the church. This is the regathering of scattered Israel, rather. It refers to those who share a common heritage with Messiah, returning to the protection of His rule. The faithful remnant that awaited Messiah's first coming will ultimately be joined by the totality of Israel, and thus all Israel will be saved under Messiah's rule. All of your brothers will return. Now it's the same Messiah who is Lord of the church. And I think this whole return is certainly prefigured at Pentecost, where there are people coming from throughout the Roman Empire to worship God there, and the Spirit is poured out by Jesus upon them. But people will come from all nations, and His brothers will return from all nations to join Him. This is a picture of the final and millennial reign of Christ. Now stick with me here for just a bit, but let's go to verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. And into this peace, by the mystery and grace of God, We Gentiles have been included by faith in the Messiah. Included among these people that are protected by Messiah. He shall be their peace. Peace is found. It is vital that we grasp this. Where is peace found? Peace is found. Not in ourselves. It's not found in our abilities. Peace is found not in our accomplishments or in the love and approval of others. Ultimate and lasting peace is found in a person, Jesus Christ, through whom we can be reconciled to God and delivered from death. Our peace is in this Prince of Peace. He will reign ultimately over this planet, and all nations will come to Him for His wisdom and be secure in the peace that He provides. But that peace never changes. It is always in His person, in His being. And it is there for us today. Under Messiah, Israel will be delivered from every external enemy, as chapter 4 makes clear at verse 3. The whole world will be at peace. There's one thing we know about the world that is now. Even though Messiah has been born, it is a world at war. But the world that he reigns will be a world at peace, and he epitomizes that peace. He is the peace provided by the Father that we might be reconciled to God and forgiven of our sins, and thus reconciled to one another. Thus peace can pervade. He is the source of peace in our souls. Do you know that? Do you know that beyond an intellectual concept? It's interesting, the class, the adult class this morning, wasn't it? In the, the essential presence of the Spirit of God. It is not merely knowing facts about Christ. It is knowing Him. It is a gift of the Spirit of God so that no one can come with their own wisdom and say, look what I have discovered, look what I know. It is the gift of the Spirit of God to illumine our soul 
and to give us peace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He shall be their peace forever and ever. And He is our peace now. Now, that's the person that is revealed here in Micah chapter 5. It's sketchy. Some of it's difficult to figure out the exact meaning. But there is this son of David born in Bethlehem. So let's go back to that question and ask, why Bethlehem? Let's take sort of a helicopter view. We're going to go up in the air and we're going to look down over the whole globe in a sense. Maybe that's not a helicopter, but that's something. A spaceship of some sort. We're going to look at the whole globe and get the biggest picture. It'll be very grainy, very sketchy, but why Bethlehem? The first answer, I think, comes way back in the book of Genesis. I invite you to turn there. Genesis chapter 9. Why Bethlehem? Genesis chapter 9 and verse 18. The sons of Noah, we find here, went forth from the ark. So the earth has been destroyed in judgment by God. And Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Ham is the father of Canaan, we're told. We're set up for that right there. Uh, These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So the, the context should be fairly clear. This is it. This is all that's there. Now we're going to trace from here where people go, and the clans, and the families, and the genealogy that flows from here. So we come to chapter 10 in this table of nations. Now, one key to reading genealogies is to look for irregularities or interruptions in the flow of the genealogy. So-and-so is born to so-and-so, and on and on and on it goes. And then we find a phrase such as, and he walked with God. That's supposed to get our attention. We are supposed to stop there at that moment and to consider the significance of the statement. Well, this genealogy plugs along fairly rapidly. It does stop at Nimrod in verse 9 and draw some attention to him, and there's very significant reason for that. Chapter 11 will play out who he is and his rebellion against God. But then it continues to plug along, and we come to verse 15 of Genesis 10, and we have a reference to Canaan. And then at verse 19, we read these words, And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adam, Adma, rather, Zeboim, as far as Lasha. That's supposed to get our attention. We've got one person born to another person, and suddenly here we're looking at territorial boundaries. What's going on? This spot is being very distinctly marked as a stage of redemptive history. What God will do from here, we need to always see in relationship to this spot on the earth. It's a bullseye. It's an X marks the spot verse. As we're working through, we're seeing who people are, who they're related to, how they work out that way, but then we have this location. This is the stage of redemptive history. It's like it's in lights and we're supposed to watch it. What's going to happen here within the borders of Canaan? Well, as we come to chapter 11, we have this great rebellion against God, an unwillingness to spread out over the face of the earth. And maybe we could say in some part an unwillingness to spread out for anyone to cross into the territory of salvation history in Canaan. But in chapter 12, God elects Abram. 
And through Abram's people, he will work out his redemptive purposes. And what's one of the first things God does with Abram? I want you to leave where you are, and I want you to go to Canaan. He doesn't tell him that right up front, but that's where he's heading. That's where he takes him. So as we look at Canaan, we see the stage on which salvation history is going to play out. This is a significant place. So we're like way up in the spaceship looking down at the earth, and as it spins right there on that little spot called Canaan, Palestine, Israel, that is the place to watch as God works out his redemptive purposes. So in the big picture, the global perspective, why Bethlehem? Because it falls within these borders. It is the stage of redemptive history. Let's go now, come down, maybe now we're in a helicopter, but now let's go down a little much closer to the earth and look over the nation of Israel. What's going on there? Why Bethlehem? Jacob blesses his 12 sons, you will remember, the namesake, Israel, of the land of Israel. He blesses his 12 sons. And again, if we asked, what have you learned in your knowledge of the Bible? Through which tribe will the kings come? Jacob blesses his 12 sons, and there is one son through whom he says the kings of Israel will be born in prophecy. We know the answer. Let's go, though, to Genesis chapter 49. Put our eyes on that. In Genesis chapter 49, Jacob prophesied this about his son Judah. Genesis 49 and verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The scepter between his feet pictures a king seated on his throne with a staff between his feet. He will rule... He will be a ruler, and these rulers will come from the tribe of Judah. Not from the firstborn, Reuben. Not from the firstborn's replacement, Joseph, Ephraim, or Manasseh. But rather through Judah, this natural leader among the twelve sons, this one that God elects to be the tribe through which the kings will be born. Let's go forward then to 2 Samuel and verse 7. 2 Samuel and verse 7. Kings will be born through Judah. We come to David, the king, and we looked at this just very recently, but remember here, Nathan the prophet is speaking to David, God's first chosen king. Saul is the first king of Israel, but really David is God's first choice. Notice what God says to him again here in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, verse 8. Now therefore, through Nathan the prophet, thus you shall say to my servant David, says God, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. In verse 11, at the end of the verse, the Lord will make you a house. Remember what the meaning of house is? Dynasty. He will make you a dynasty. That is, there will be kings who will flow from you, David. You will be the father of kings, verse 16. And your house, your dynasty, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of the lineage of King David, 
It had been 600 years since David had a legitimate ruler to sit on his throne. 600 years in waiting. David says, God, here, there will be kings that come from you, from your lineage, who will rule. It's been 600 years. There's been a lot of waiting. Why Bethlehem? As we think back on Micah 5, and we put it together with what God has said here to David, because it was the city of David whose throne God promised to establish. So it's not only King David, but it is in a unique sense through this little town of Bethlehem that God's promises of reign and rule are realized. So the big picture, Canaan, the stage of redemptive history. The smaller picture, the promises to David as king and his birthplace in Bethlehem as the staging ground from which the Messiah will be born. That in itself is an amazing thing. We could chase, and we don't have time, but to consider how God got His Messiah in Bethlehem. It's not where Jesus grew up. It's not where He was was raised. Not where His family is from, was it? But we know at just the right time, God providentially brings Him from Nazareth in the north all the way down near Jerusalem to the village of Bethlehem where Mary gives birth. Christ in this village. Hundreds of years ago prophesied, and just through this strange turn of events and taxation issues, Jesus is born in this very village as a son of David. That's why Bethlehem. That's why it was utterly important. So don't get the sense it was utterly important because Micah made that prophecy, and boy, we really wish he hadn't. It would be a lot more convenient to stay here in Nazareth. I don't think they're thinking along those lines at all. It's important that he's in Bethlehem because it is there that King David was born, and this will evidence that he is coming from that line. But let's go down now to the carpet. Let's get right down on the earth. Why Bethlehem? In the nitty-gritty of life, as we say, where the rubber meets the road, why this village? We need to understand culturally that a man's importance in the ancient world was judged to a significant degree by the prominence of the city in which he was born. I wonder, I have no proof of this, but I kind of wonder if the chief priest, when they came to Herod and he said, where will Messiah be born? If they didn't blush a little bit and go, man, I wish they'd quit asking this question. Now, on some level, they did understand the glory of it because it was David's town and David's city. But in the years of Herod, and certainly in the years of any Roman ruler, Bethlehem wasn't going to impress anybody. And that's the whole point. Do you not see the master artist at this place. God specializes in using small and despised things to work out the wonder of His saving purposes. We see it over and over again, don't we? This is how the master artist paints the picture of salvation history. When God chose the family through whom Messiah would be born, who does He choose? Of all the people on the planet... He chooses Abram and Sarai and says, through you will be born the Redeemer. They are an elderly, infertile couple. 
That's God's way. When God chose a king through whom Messiah would be born, He chose not the older, more prominent sons of Jesse who had earned a reputation as warriors in Israel. Remember as Samuel stands there, Lord, is this the one? Not him. Not him. Not him. They have to leave Jesse's home and go out into the fields and find little David with his sheep. This is the one. The one everyone's overlooked. He's the one I've chosen to be my king. This is how God paints. This is how He works. When God chose a woman to bear the Savior, He chooses an impoverished peasant girl who cannot afford but the least expensive sacrifice. There's evidences, in fact, that the birds that she offered as a sacrifice and dedication of the newborn Christ could always be gained without cost. And remember what Mary sings in praise to the Lord. He lifts the humble. That's who God chooses as the mother of Christ. And so when God chooses a place for Messiah's birth, we see again the strokes of the artist. He chose the insignificant, sleepy little village of Bethlehem. Just six miles from Jerusalem, the contrast was unmistakable. To this very day, Bethlehem is an insignificant small place in many respects. And so much more so then, but this is how God works. God's Messiah was born in the humble village of God's chosen kings who would glory in the Lord, not in their birthplace. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'd invite you there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as we have a summation of this very way of God to use the weak and small things of this world. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. 1 Corinthians 1, 26, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Why? Why does the artist, the master artist, work this way? Why does God choose weak and insignificant things? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. What does that say, verse 30? He is the source of your life. Whom God, that is Jesus, God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Does that wave ever hit you? I am so insignificant. Maybe you look at yourself in the mirror and say, I am so useless. I am a failure. I am so small. Now, I don't mean that in the self-pitying way. I don't mean one in which you get this tear in your eye and feel all sorry for yourself, and maybe you're saying these things because you really think the exact opposite and you just wish more people would see how great you really are. None of that. I mean the true, honest, straightforward, I realize how small I am. 
how insignificant I am, how useless in many respects I am. I'm totally replaceable. It's at that very point. It is when we see ourselves as small that we can see God as big. It is when we are weak that God makes us strong. It is when our souls are emptied of self-satisfaction and pride that we are fitted to trust God because we have no other options. We cling to Him when we see ourselves as weak and small. It is when we're emptied of self-worship that we can truly boast in the Lord. Why Bethlehem? It was in the bullseye of salvation history. It was the stage on which God's redemptive purposes would be worked out generally. More specifically, it was the birthplace of David and thus formed a vital link to Jesus as the promised son of David coming from his lineage and even being born in his very town as a conqueror. Not merely of the hostile forces of this world, but a conqueror of the ultimate hostile forces against his people, death and Satan. Why Bethlehem? coming right down into our very lives because it was a humble place. It was a humble place that God could use to show that His glory and His redemptive plan never rest on man's wisdom or strength. In part, Bethlehem, that we might learn not to boast in the flesh, but to boast in the Lord. He was born in this town. If we understand why, we should rejoice all the more in the King who has come and is our peace. We should rejoice as we await in anticipation His second coming when His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Are you looking to this Prince of Peace today? This prophesied Son of David who has conquered death and sin, who reigns today and will come to establish His kingdom on earth where His will will be done here as it is in heaven. May we look to Him in worship. Let's pray. We praise You, Father, for the One who breaks the darkness with His liberating light. We praise You, Father, for what You have done to rescue us from our sin. For those who have come to saving faith in Christ, we rejoice to discern He was born in Bethlehem, born a king, born to rule, the greater son of David, and the one in whose humility we see the way to rejoice in You. We are insignificant people. We come before You with that confession, not with a tear in our eye, but with the joy in our heart that You have shown us our insignificance, that we might see Your greatness. I pray that we'd rejoice in that. Lord, there may be someone here who's laboring in the flesh to be a righteous and good person. I pray that You would show them that that self-righteousness will never stand against the enemy of Satan and will never be able to conquer death. I pray that You'll show such people that self-righteousness will end in doom. But I pray that the hope of Christ would dawn. And that there might be seen in Jesus Christ the answer 
to our redemption, our reconciliation with you and the forgiveness of our sins. We praise you that a king has come. We praise you that he was born in Bethlehem and that he is the Savior of the world. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.